So we're recording now. Can you hear me fine? Yes. Okay, good. Good. And I can hear you and we're set and we're dangerously low battery life, but that will be part of the excitement. Hey gang, it's Harold, and here is another podcast. The San Diego gaming community is full of interesting people who are doing interesting things. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with fellow gamer Dan Mansfield. We'll discuss his YouTube channel providing game reviews in American Sign Language, his work in the games industry, and his guidance on gaming with the deaf and hard of hearing. Thanks for listening. Dan has been playing games since he was a kid, mostly car games and the usual kids' games, but also backgammon and chess. He didn't really consider himself a board game enthusiast until about 10 years ago. Now he plays all types of games, including Euros and War Games. When he's not playing games, he works as an editor and also enjoys rock climbing and hiking. Dan and I have been joined today by Daniel, a friend of Dan's who's a certified American Sign Language interpreter. Although Dan usually lip reads well and voices for himself, Daniel is with us to help ensure that Dan understands me clearly. So the voice you hear in this podcast is that of Daniel, while the words and thoughts behind the voice are Dan's. Dan is going to sign his responses and Daniel will voice those comments. I've been told by Dan that interpreting American Sign Language into spoken English is not an exact word-for-word translation. Instead, Daniel will use his skills and experience as an interpreter to understand the concepts expressed by Dan in sign language and then convert those signs into spoken English. Daniel's way of expressing something may not be exactly what Dan would have said if he were voicing for himself, but it will be close. You will hear some delays as we all communicate through this chain. We'll start this interview with a question on how Dan got involved in gaming in general. Oh, well, I grew up uh, playing lots of different games, Uh, card games, uh, backgammon, chess, and a few other games. And I played Dungeons and Dragons a little bit. Uh, I wasn't really that great at it, but I played it a little bit. And then uh, sometime later, uh, about 10 years ago, I started playing a few different games, uh, just with friends of mine. And I became that person who would purchase the games and then teach my friends how to play them. And so because of that, I just started playing a really wide variety of games. And now my collection is over 100 games of whole different varieties, card games, uh, Euro games, war games, and just social games and things like that in my collection. So 100 games in your collection. How many of those games have you actually played? Uh, I would say about 90% of them. That's pretty good. There's a few that I'm still trying to learn. Do you have a Do you have a shelf of shame that uh, shows us the games you haven't played? 
I do, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, mainly the heavy war games. Uh, I just got a few from GMT. And uh, the rule book is an inch and a half thick. <laughs> and so I'm going to have to recruit some friends to uh, get started in those games. <laughs> so what, what drove your interest in moving from traditional broad-based games to war games? Uh, I find that when I play war games, um, I just notice myself getting more involved kind of on like a one-on-one um, style game. So four-player games, um, I tend to more just kind of focus on myself. But with like a war game, you know, with just me and one other player and this kind of opponent-style, head-to-head kind of a thing, um, it's really just more um, interesting to me, that dynamic. And of the war games you've played, which ones stand out to you? I love uh, Twilight Struggle. Oh, really, can't say enough about it. And uh, and A Few Acres of Snow is another one that I really like. Oh, I love those two games, particularly. So you and I recently played Twilight Struggle in the first round of the San Diego War Gamers Tournament. And you beat mm-hmm. me. I did, <laughs> with an asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> well, n- no asterisk when your opponent is too dumb not to <laughs> cause thermonuclear war. <laughs> yes, you could say that. Uh, that was a really interesting game. <laughs> uh, we kept playing after that, and uh, we finished turn 10. And really, whoa, I learned a lot about that game during that time. So uh, my next game after that, uh, I just kept playing and playing. I think we got to turn eight. Um, so uh, one year ago, I just started playing that game. And at that point, I couldn't get past turn two or three. Uh, I just got beat too easily. Uh, but now I'm learning a lot. As, as we've discussed, that game pays significant dividends to players that have played it a lot. Because you learn the deck, right? Yeah, I see, uh, you know, the end approaching, you know, the imminent end. <laughs> so I know that other players have got the card that I'm just waiting for it to happen. I'm waiting for it to be played and then that's over. <laughs> so I'm just trying to survive one more turn just to get to one more round. <laughs> now, the second round I found interesting because it looks like you have have uh, tricked out or modified the game with flags and some other fun stuff. Where did you get the flags? I thought they were terrific. I just uh, buy random things at the store from time to time. I see things on the shelf, and I'm just thinking, okay, you know, that would be perfect for uh, for a Twilight Struggle or another game, you know. so, uh, you know, if I'm out and I see, like, little props and things, I just love to add, like, different things to the game, you know, uh, to increase the atmosphere of the game. So I just add little things, you know. Uh, like you can see, I have in front of me uh, this little bird feeders looking uh, icons for um, wingspan. Oh, for wingspan. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so I just love to upgrade uh, yes. the gear in the different games. Especially when you know it's a game you will play many times. I enjoy that. And, and, and Twilight Struggle for me, like you, it sounds, is one of those games. Oh, absolutely, yes. I can imagine playing that game, you know, indefinitely, really for the rest of my life, sure. 
Now, you also told me a story that I thought was interesting about Dungeons and Dragons, uh, that, that early on you were enticed by, uh, by the temptation, just like I was. What was interesting to you about Dungeons and Dragons? So growing up, um, I just had a really vivid imagination. So I liked to be creative. I liked to, you know, create stories. So I saw Dungeons and Dragons, and I played it a few times, uh, solo games. Um, and I got to the point where I just really wanted to play with another player. Um, so at that time, I went to a convention, and my mom tried to interpret for me <laughs> at that time, but she just couldn't keep up. <laughs> so because of that, I wasn't able to really follow the game. Uh, so at that point, I mean, I'm 10 or 11 years old, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to leave this convention early. And I was really upset by it. You know, I cried in the car, and I was a little you know, dismayed. Uh, but uh, as of June of this year, I went to the Deaf Board Game Convention in Texas, and that was the first time I played a real RPG. Uh, it was a Star Wars RPG, and I loved it. So I, so another player was the Dungeon Master, and woo, they were phenomenal. Um, so it was a great experience for all of us who were participating in that game. That's great, and and I feel for your mother trying to interpret all of these strange Dungeons and Dragons words, right, that are not common. <laughs> That's right. They're not <laughs> common. And uh, she didn't know the game, you know, specifically herself, too. So. <laughs> right. That's good. So, Dan, tell me about the challenges that you face in entering the hobby and playing board games. Uh, primarily, the issue for me is trying to learn the rules of the game, of course. Uh, and uh, doing that on site is a huge challenge, right? So if another player introduces me to a new game, I'm trying to learn it, you know, on the fly, and it's uh, difficult to follow. So normally I can lip read uh, fairly well, uh, but if it's a brand new game where the concepts are unique uh, and I'm not familiar with the context, you know, of the game and its vocabulary, uh, making that makes it difficult to follow the rules. Um, so I typically will ask in advance, you know, I'll ask my friends, so what game will we be playing? And once they let me know the name of the game, um, I will, you know, ahead of time kind of read and get familiar with the game. But I've got great friends who all, you know, are happy to tell me like, okay, we'll be playing this game, um, which I can ahead of time, you know, get familiar with the vocabulary, with the concepts and with the rules of the game, the terminology that I'll be seeing. Um, that way, when the game is uh, underway and I'm rip, uh, excuse me, lip reading the other players, I can do that more easily. Right. Do you, um, do you play with more, um, people that aren't, uh, deaf or hard of hearing? Or do you play primarily with others that are deaf and hard of hearing or have a, a skill for ASL and experience with ASL? Uh, mainly, I'm playing with uh, hearing individuals who don't know um, ASL fluently. They might know the uh, ABCs and their numbers, uh, but really nothing beyond that. Um, so their language use of ASL is limited, but that, that's typically uh, the people that I play with. Uh, but again, I can lip read fairly well. And uh, if we are discussing the game, uh, that makes it easier to lip read if I'm already, as I said before, familiar with uh, the terminology with the game. Um, but if uh, the 
topic of conversation deviates from the game itself, you know, for a moment we're talking about movies or baseball or something like that. <laughs> Sometimes I have to uh, <laughs> hold the train and uh, try to change my thought process uh, as I'm lip reading uh, my fellow players. Like, okay, well, what are we talking about now? <laughs> right. Now, our experience in playing together, um, I've noted that you do like to know the rules before you play a game. Now, I, I share that same desire. I like to know the rules before I play. It's hard for me to sit down at a game and play the first time without knowing the rules and feel like I'm being effective. But I've also noticed that you have, as you mentioned, very good lip-reading skills. I can also understand your voice when we talk, which is very helpful to me. Is that a common experience while playing with others that are deaf and hard of hearing? Should I expect that? No, as a matter of fact, um, I would say my experience is uh, somewhat different. Um, every deaf and hard of hearing individual, you know, has a different background. So I was uh, mainstreamed in my education early on, uh, where I attended speech therapy lessons a lot. So it was there that I learned to lip read at a really young age. Uh, but that's not true for all deaf people, uh, deaf and hard of hearing individuals. Their experiences might be uh, vastly different. So some deaf individuals can voice for themselves. Others uh, choose not to. Um, others, when they're immersed in a setting where they're around hearing people, might prefer to write back and forth with their fellow teammates as opposed to using their voice. It just really ultimately depends on the individual. Today we have Daniel, who is an expert at ASL. And when we're talking to a war game crowd, we have to be careful when we mention ASL, because it also stands for Advanced Squad Leader. But American Sign Language, in this particular case, is what we're talking about. The means of communication, when you and I play, of course, Daniel isn't available, or, or I'm sure he is, but has other things to do. And you and I play, and we can manage. It would seem that there are other... There have to be other ways to manage um, playing with someone who's deaf or hard of hearing. For example, uh, I've heard of people using notepads or texting to make sure that they communicate clearly. Yeah, that's right. I have friends who prefer to do that uh, in a mixed setting, like I said before. Uh, I've got like uh, a tablet uh, where you know I can write back and forth, and I know other deaf individuals have used that as well. Um, also, you know, the rule book is, uh, you know, printed in English, so that's, you know, visually accessible. Um, uh, and it just depends on the individual's level of interest with that particular game as well, right? If a deaf or hard of hearing player is uh, really intrigued and immersed in a particular game, of course, they're going to um, pick it up and may be more inclined to play with hearing individuals. You and I have learned to play together, and it's been a terrific education for me because there's so much that I take for granted not having to deal with the challenges you deal with. So I'm going to ask a series of questions that really are trying, are, are aimed at trying to help others understand how easy it is to play with someone that is deaf or hard of hearing and what they might do to make it a better experience for both parties. The first question I'm going to ask is when you and I are playing I, and you're an excellent lip reader, is it important as to whether or not I make eye contact with you while you're lip reading? Should I enunciate? 
more than I normally would if it's just um, an audible discussion. Any advice or thoughts on how to do that? Uh, my suggestion would be to just speak as you normally would, uh, not to over-enunciate your words. Um, you might change your speech pattern in a way that you're not uh, even aware. So the first time you know you might be playing with a deaf or hard of hearing person who is uh, trying to lip read you, at first um, it might not be uh, fluid and effortless. I have had that experience in the past where I've played a game with uh, someone before and I weren't quite easily able to lip read them in the beginning, but as time went on, I got better and better at um, reading their lips while they were, you know, uh, enunciating their uh, their words and uh, moving their mouth in a way that I think they might not have even been aware of, you know. And uh, I have noticed the same for uh, other friends, that when we're playing a game together uh, and we are communicating one-on-one, they uh, enunciate and move their mouth uh, different with me than they do with uh, <laughs> when they're talking with other players. <laughs> so sometimes when they're talking with each other, I'm not quite able to understand them, uh, but then they turn back to talk to me. Uh, and yeah, that little change happens in their mouth movements, and then I'm able to understand them. So, so your preference would be not to change the enunciation to speak as I would normally speak? Yes, I would say so at first. Um, do that. And then for me, uh, if I didn't understand you, um, I would you know, ask you to repeat yourself and the, you know, the onus would be on me, so to speak. Uh, you know, me or if you were to be playing with another deaf player, you know, they might ask you um, to slow down in your speech or a little bit, uh, you know, make some modifications if they don't understand you initially. So one of the first things that I noticed when we played together was basically my assumption on how a group communicates. For example, playing a four-player game, we've played Root together, we've played Liberty or Death together, and with four people at the table, I never realized how much audible cueing goes on at the table. And so I realized that in order to get your attention, I had to do something different than I would normally do. Do you have a preference for how I get your attention or others might get your attention when you're playing at a big table of players? I sometimes just hold my hand up in an odd way that signals that I'm, I'm that I'd like to talk to you. I, I hesitate to tap your arm because I think that's that's intrusive. But do you have a, a view on how how best to do that? So uh, I would say, first of all, if you are playing near me, it is more than fine to reach across the table, uh, to wave your hand, uh, to get my attention. Flap your hand uh, in front of the uh, other person. It is certainly not rude. In deaf culture, uh, it, that is certainly fine. You also can um, smack the table. Uh, if the person is far from you, you know, too far for you to be able to reach over, it is certainly okay in the deaf world to just bang on the table. That's uh, actually quite normal. Which creates a vibration that should be reactive. Exactly. Should players also work to learn ASL when playing with a over the long term with a, a deaf or hard of hearing player. We, we talked about this once and you mentioned sometimes it may seem flippant if a player doesn't, or if a player tries to learn little bits of sign language. H how do you feel about that? Really, I always appreciate the effort 
um, if another person really is interested in improving their communication with me, uh, you know, I, that's encouraging and I love that. Um, they can begin by learning the letters and numbers and colors in American Sign Language. Um, and, you know, ultimately, it's not necessary. That's not something that would be required. But uh, I do appreciate that. I've noticed that my gaming friends um, over the years have acquired, you know, at least the alphabet in American Sign Language. Um, that way, if there's a word that's really difficult for me to lip read, um, they have the ability to spell it to me. So are there specific games that are easier for deaf and hard of hearing players to interact with? Are there types of games that are harder? I would say the um, easier type of games. Um, maybe the more abstract games. Um, games that require a lot of focus on you know, your actions as a player um, that don't necessarily require a lot of communication or negotiation. Um, those, I think, would be easier for a group of deaf and hearing people you know, together uh, to play together. Other games that require a high level of socialization and you know, communication between players, uh, that can be challenging. So I prefer uh, those types of games to be played with other deaf players. So when I'm playing with hearing uh, individuals, I prefer to be play. So with hearing people... My preference is to not play those kinds of uh, situational, excuse me, social games. Well, the, uh, the other thing that we've talked about is, that are there certain personality types that are hard for you to play with? And, and I think uh, the, the, in general, your answer was no when we chatted about this, but you did also bring up that once someone thought that you were pretending to be deaf... <laughs> yes, that was five or six years ago. I was playing with a group of people, and we were just playing a pretty typical game. I was uh, voicing for myself and uh, liberating the other players. There was one other person who was not involved in playing the game, was just kind of observing. And um, he had said something that I had missed initially, so I asked him to repeat what he had said. And then one person who was watching the game said, well, why would you do that? Uh, are you deaf? No. So why are you lying? Why are you lying about being deaf? Why are you doing that? That's rude. You shouldn't be doing that. And I was stunned in that moment. It's I just incredible. remember looking at them being like, uh, as a matter of fact, I am deaf. So I'm lip reading and I'm you know, listening, you know, electing to use my own voice. But no, I'm a deaf person. And uh, that was really offensive to me that... So at that time, my whole group kind of, uh, you know, stared daggers at that person for a moment and then just decided to ignore them. And we laughed about it later, but ooh, in that moment, yeah, that was really something. I couldn't really believe uh, what was uh, transpiring, you know. Um, I, I was wondering, did this person think I'm just pretending to be deaf because it's giving me some kind of advantage? There's really no advantage in a game setting to being deaf or pretending to be deaf. One of the things that I realized I've never asked you uh, having played a number of times together, is for any feedback on whether or not there are things that I can do to improve your experience when we play. And and I wonder if, if it would be good for players to ask that. And, and as I think about it, maybe good for players, whether they're uh, deaf or hard of hearing or not, 
Uh, really, that has uh, yeah never really come up in my discussions. Uh, there has been times uh, where I have been asked by players, you know, should I learn my alphabet uh, in American Sign Language? And my response is always, you know, you can if you're interested, but you don't have to. You know, it's not a requirement. So um, as for learning the American Sign Language alphabet or learning signs, you know, if, if that's your motivation, if you're interested in doing that, absolutely. But um, yeah, it just really uh, depends on the individual. I'm always happy to teach the alphabet <laughs> to anyone interested in learning. But yeah, that uh, question about feedback is not something that uh, I have broached a lot. Um, but I will say, though, that learning the alphabet does require practice <laughs> if someone <laughs> actually wants to learn it. So you spend a portion of your time working in the game industry as a freelance editor. Uh, that's right. I work um, as a freelance editor for uh, Inside Up. It's a company that's based in Canada. It's a small company. So they have made a few games so far. So I have worked as a freelance editor for them. And I've worked on their rule books. Uh, my day job, I am also an editor. <laughs> So on the uh, weekends, I read and edit uh, rule books uh, in order for the game to be able to be played better. You know, making sure that the rules are uh, written in a way that they're as clear as they can be. So that's, you know, uh, language and grammar are an area of expertise for me. So yes, I do freelance in that respect. Good. Is that something you enjoy? I do. I really, I just hate to see uh, a early made, or excuse me, a poorly made rule book. Uh, <laughs> I've seen games uh, from Inside Up games, and uh, at first glance, I thought, okay, so that looks like a really excellent game. Uh, however, the rule book <laughs> needs uh, some improvements. So in that case, uh, I reached out to them and offered my services to them, and uh, they accepted it. And I was able to help edit the rules in a way that, at least in my opinion, is clear. <laughs> when you edit, do you work with the game in front of you to ensure that the linkage is tight? Yes, I do. Um, I have uh, prints out, excuse me, printouts of the game board where I have uh, the cards in front of me. That way I'm able to see them. And making sure that the verbiage in the rulebook aligns with, you know, the actual pieces. Um, and at times I will have a prototype of the game uh, where I'm able to see all the pieces and the board itself. I uh, get a sense of how the game works and how it moves and flows. And then I can uh, help to edit the rulebook uh, correctly. If there's any ambiguity or um, if I'm not unclear about how the game is actually played, I can always reach out to the game developers at that time. Um, and I have done that in the past where I realized that there are elements of the game that are not always apparent, but it matters to have that knowledge when you are uh, editing the rules. In my experience, that's what separates the professional editors from the semi-professional editors, is th that linkage to what's happening in the game. Because an editing process has to be integrated with the game. So my, in my experience in design, the best editors I've ever had are the ones that change things in the rules to make the game easier to understand and play and frequently ask me to change things in the game. As long as the editing is done early enough to allow for that. And like I said before, designers always end up using the same words over and over again. 
So if you are reading the rules, you get a sense of the words as they pertain to the game. And um, that helps to describe the essence of the game. So you also have a YouTube channel where you do videos on board games, reviews, uh, analysis using American Sign Language, ASL. How did you get started doing that? Uh, the first video I did uh, just for fun. <laughs> and after a few videos that I did, I realized, um, okay, there's an audience for this. There are people who want to see um, these videos in American Sign Language. At that point, I started to kind of up my production value a little bit, worked a little harder uh, at them and polished them up, so to speak. So now when I make a video, I have a script in advance. Uh, I spend about a month considering how I want to discuss the game, uh, what I'll be saying in my vlog. I'll set up the table uh, in a way that's easy you know, to see. And then I typically will film over a weekend, uh, which case I'll do some editing, uh, making sure that I've encapsulated all the rules within the game. And of course, I like to add captions uh, for all um, of my videos. That way they're accessible to everyone. Um, so I post my videos on YouTube, uh, like you said before, but they're accessible to everyone. The one experience we had playing Liberty or Death and filming your video in ASL was quite fun. And one of the things I remember is that you built a good deal of theater into the process. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's a little makeshift, <laughs> I would say. Uh, so I am setting up, you know, uh, uh, props and, you know, my tripod. And, uh, <laughs> and sometimes I have to assemble boxes that way I can get the tripod up uh, higher off the ground. Um, and uh, setting it up so, you know, you can't see it. So if the video uh, looks good, then that means that there is chaos ensuing just outside of the range of the, <laughs> of the camera lens. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, will sit down, uh, record a portion of it, get up, turn the camera off, you know, move the set around. Um, so really it takes about two hours of me to produce about two minutes worth of footage, you know, after I'm done <laughs> editing out my mistakes. <laughs> it really is a mess behind the scenes. <laughs> It was good fun, and, and the thing I remember the most was your, I, I feel like it was genuine disgust as the British when the French won the war. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, the end of that game uh, arrived, so I uh, drew a card, and I think we, at that time we were discussing it. Uh, but I realized, okay, that would be something great to show in the video. So I was like, okay, let's uh, put the card back down. Let's set this up in a way that I can capture it on film. <laughs> and let's get the camera rolling. And then uh, let's, we kind of acted it out in the sense since we had already done it. <laughs> and we knew what was coming. Uh, so then I flipped the card on film and we pretended <laughs> to be shocked. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was good fun. I very much enjoyed it. And have received a very positive response for making that video. Uh, you, you have, and I've received that feedback to pass along to you. I think people that love the games that we like are excited that, uh, especially if they have friends or loved ones that are deaf or hard of hearing, 
that this can become a little more accessible or they can share something with, they're very excited. Yeah, I really want to make board games more accessible for deaf and hard of hearing individuals. Uh, It doesn't matter if they're abstract or war games. Uh, I want to make games accessible for um, deaf and hard of hearing people. My YouTube videos, I like to show a different kind of variety of games. Um, I have done card games. I've done episodes on war games, um, socialization-based games, and the like, um, hoping that people who watch those videos will find a game that kind of speaks to them, something that they might be interested in. And in that case, if they have deaf friends or family, you know, they can share that video with them and, you know, get playing. Agreed. And I, and I think there are two parts, of two pieces of the puzzle. One is... <clears throat> can we make the deaf and hard of hearing more comfortable with the games? But also those of us that haven't played with players who are deaf or hard of hearing, how, how can we make it easier for them to work with that deaf or hard of hearing individual uh, and, and increase the comfort on both sides? Yeah, and it's not just me. We have a few other uh, ASL videos that are available on YouTube. There's one called Dibs on Blue. So that is another uh, YouTuber who does videos and videos for games in ASL. So both of us are kind of producing uh, somewhat similar content. Uh, Ultimately, we are showing uh, interested players how to play respective games. And ultimately, yeah, the goal is like, if you, okay, if you see a game you like, see a game you might be wanting to play, and you've got deaf or hearing, uh, hard of hearing friends in your circle, you know, play this game, give it a try. I noticed that Rodney with Watch It played games. Yeah, that's uh, Stephanie. So she uh, also uh, is a YouTuber. She interprets for Rodney. Right. That's great. The more the merrier. Absolutely. Yes, of course. The other thing that you do every year is you go to a board game convention in Austin, Texas. And it is a uh, deaf board game convention? Sure. So it was last uh, June. It was the third annual deaf board game convention. So I have been every year since the beginning. And really, for me, that is absolutely hands down the best weekend of the year. So I go for about three or four days and I'm just immersed in this environment where we're using ASL uh, to play these games. I'm seeing friends I haven't seen in a year. I'm making new friends while I'm there. So really, it is a wonderful experience. Uh, there, it's a, a space where there are absolutely no communication barriers. So I have learned new games from other players there, and I've had the opportunity to teach other game, uh, excuse me, other gamers games that I'm familiar with. Um, I've been involved in tournaments there. The sponsors there are. Uh, really, really generous, uh, like GMT and uh, Renegade. Uh, Also, Cool Stuff is another one. And really, they make it a great experience for uh, any attendee. That's great. And we'll share some pictures um, from the convention in the notes to this particular podcast. So, Dan and Daniel, I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk about, Dan, your love for board gaming, and also how we can improve accessibility and the comfort in playing together. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this discussion.
So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games group on Facebook for discussion of the podcast. Leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to Adam Riviera for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. And I'll close with a special thanks to Dan Mansfield and Daniel Candido. And that's it for me. As always, I'm patiently awaiting Holland Spiel's next 50 games. And I'll be back soon.